you'll keep your Bibles open to 1 Peter chapter 1. I was reminded as I was getting ready this week, uh, the Puritans were famous for having long sermons. I've tried to follow that tradition. Uh, and uh, last week, as you know, we, we went through all 39 books of the Old Testament. <clears throat> and I was reminded of the Puritan pastor who said, that his sermon last week had so many points that his sermon this week would be pointless. Um, We're not quite going to go there, but uh, you can understand. So we're only going to try and cover two verses instead of 39 books. So you should be able to get out of here uh, a little little closer to on time. I don't know if you've ever received a a letter at just the right time uh, to bring some much-needed comfort or, or clarity But I know that I have, and I know others who have. And as I was thinking about that this week, I was thinking about Ben and Jana Askins. Uh, Not everybody here knows Ben and Jana. They were members of our congregation for a long time. And uh, Ben moved down to Kentucky to finish his master's at uh, Southern Theological Seminary. But while they were still here, uh, a tragedy occurred. Ben was falsely charged with murder. Uh, That happened after he was serving as medical director for uh, a wilderness camp ministry in Colorado. It was a ministry aimed at helping at-risk youth, those who were uh, abusing substances. And one of the boys in the program, while Ben was occupying this position as medical director, uh, died. And as Ben found out, that he was charged with murder when a friend from Colorado called him here and said, I just read it in the newspaper. Uh, He hadn't even been told by the district attorney. As you can well imagine, as a young couple, this was an extraordinary time of stress and difficulty. Um, Only a few months earlier, Ben's father had passed away unexpectedly. And so he was really under the gun. I can't really imagine what a harrowing experience that was to be in. And then, after several months of going back out to Colorado and coming back here and going through all sorts of things, uh, agonizing months, they received the news that the charges, which really should never have been filed at all, were dropped. I can only begin to imagine, uh, secondly then, what the sense of relief must have been for the two of them at that moment. What can it be to be up on charges for murder and then to falsely and then have those charges dismissed? Uh, Peter's first audience for this letter of First Peter is no doubt feeling extreme relief when they receive this letter from Peter and its contents. And that forms an awful lot of how you have to read this letter of Peter's and how you interpret it, especially if we're going to get out of it anything that that we really need. And so to do that, I want to spend our time this morning considering, I'll tell you ahead, we want to look at two major governing ideas that pop up in the letter, and they're going to help us in our study all the way through. So these two ideas will form kind of a subtext for us, two major ideas, and then we're going to look just this morning out of the first two verses, that's as far as we're going to get this morning, we're going to look at four key concepts for believers that are contained in those first two verses. And it's evident from the first two verses that Peter's writing to people that are in some sort of distress. He addresses them in verse 1 as elect exiles. An interesting combination of words. That they are elect, in other words, they're God's people, but there are people that are not at home. They're exiles. And that's got to be a a horrible feeling. Now, I can't spend the time this morning to unpack the fullness of what Peter means when he refers to Christians here as elect. God willing, I'm going to focus on that uh, a couple weeks down the road, and we'll just look at that doctrine of election as it appears in Scripture as a separate concept. But suffice it to say that when he refers to his readers as the elect here, he's using it as a synonym for the believer or a true Christian. A true Christian in the biblical sense of 
having been born again by the Spirit of God. Because the Bible only knows of that kind of Christian. Doesn't know of a Christian who simply is a member of a religious group. It only knows of Christians who have been truly born again by the Spirit. Those that are trusting in the death of Jesus on the cross as Him substituting for the death that they deserved. So that they might have the blessings that He deserved. That's what salvation's all about. God pouring out His wrath on Jesus so that those who put their faith in Him might have the blessings that should have been poured out on Christ applied to us. This is what saving faith is. It's not mere knowledge, not even mere theological knowledge, knowledge that Jesus is God. That's true. You have to know that. And that there's a trinity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's true. Or you can even know what the gospel is, that the gospel's the good news of Jesus dying in the place of sinners. We can, we can know that intellectually, and we can even know that somebody has to have faith in Christ and his atoning work. But that much, the book of James tells us, the demons know. They know those facts. Matter of fact, in James 2.19, he says, you believe that God is one. Well, you do well. Even the, de- the demons believe that and they shudder. True saving faith has to go beyond the mere knowledge of true and sound doctrine. And it actually trusts in the Savior and in his death on one's behalf. And so I can ask you, have you personally trusted him as your substitute? Are you resting your entire hope of salvation on Jesus and not on any goodness or anything in yourself? That's a vital question for each of us to ask. We all have to rest all of our hope on his person and his work and especially his atoning work at Calvary. True Christians, when it's really looked at, have abandoned all other hope of being acceptable to God through religion or self-effort or anything else, and have cast themselves upon his mercy. In Romans 4, Paul reminds us, it is to the one, and to the one who does not work, doesn't try to justify himself by his works, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. That's how we come to be saved by Christ. So I want to go back to this first framing thought that we have in the opening verse here. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now the question that would immediately come to mind as you're reading a passage like this, at least it should come to mind if you're reading and trying to really understand what the the text says, is whether or not Peter's use of that word exile is meant to be figurative or literal. And it wouldn't be an, an, an unreasonable conclusion to say that it's figurative. You think of a passage like Hebrews 11. And there the writer cites Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Sarah and, and notes in Hebrews eleven thirteen, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. That word strangers there before exiles, which is also used here in in 1 Peter 2. It's only used three times in the New Testament. Twice in 1 Peter and this passage in Hebrews. And each time it means foreigner. Somebody who's really in a place where it's, it's not of their birth. It's not where they belong. It's not where they, they grew up. For people who speak thus, like those who came before, they make it clear that they're seeking a homeland. And if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a a heavenly one. And therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he prepared for them a city. So in that sense, we're all exiles. Ever since the fall in Genesis chapter 3, the human race has been banished from the garden. 
We've been banished from the manifest presence of God. We've, we've not been able to go directly back in. Uh, and that's due to our rebellion. And in salvation, while God heals our relationship through the blood and the sacrifice of Christ, and so we're healed in our relationship to the Father for all who believe in his substitutionary death, even though his spirit has been sent to indwell us as believers, we're still waiting that final reunion. That day when he returns and we'll see him face to face and we'll no longer be in exile. When heaven and earth will be reunited and, and that extraordinary reality of, of living in his manifest presence for all eternity becomes ours. And we'll be living with him in the closest intimacy in every way possible. Now that's the hope of, of everyone who has been born again by the spirit of Christ through the gospel. But let's look again at our text here. In verses 3 through 5, Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. There's something ahead of us. Through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, and kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. The fullness of our salvation isn't here yet. We're waiting for that. We're waiting for the fullness of our inheritance. And we'll explore verses 3 through 5 in the weeks to come uh, more thoroughly in time. So a figurative use of the term exile here is certainly legitimate. There's, There's no problem with that. And in for Christians in every age, and you can read First and Second Peter with enormous profit if that's the only way, if that's the only lens you use to look at this passage. For the home we all share is is meant to be part of our self identity that we're not quite quite where we want to be, where we tend, where our hearts yearn to be, in the presence of God. But I want to suggest to you that I think Peter is, in fact, being far more literal here than sometimes is accounted for. And it's why this letter is going to be increasingly useful for us as we examine our place in time and history as we look ahead, especially in North America today, in the United States of America today. Now, I say that because we've got a big debt to owe to some modern scholarship and discoveries about the part of the world that Peter says he's writing to. He opened, it opens up some very interesting facts. We know, for instance, just to keep this in the back of your mind, that Peter was martyred in Rome sometime in the mid-60s, in, during the reign of Emperor Nero. So these letters had to be written before that time. But second, from the text, we know that Peter writes to a people who are scattered Throughout, and he says this in verse 1, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, uh, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, that's an area, and I'm going to show you here. You can see these. This, is, this would be called modern Turkey. And he's writing to Galatia, Bithynia, Asia, Cappadocia, and Pontus. It's a huge geographical area. It's an area of northern Turkey, modern Turkey, that spans about 129,000 square miles. He's not writing to an individual church the way Paul is often writing to a specific church, but he's writing to people in this vast region. As a comparison, like I said, this is an area of about 129,000 square miles. California is about 159,000 square miles. So almost the size of California. And what's interesting about this area when Peter was ministering to these people via this letter is that this was probably the least Hellenized or, or brought into the Greek, the Roman Greek culture, um, 
Far less than the southern portion where Paul had so much success. When he writes to the church of Galatia, for instance, he's writing to a church that's down here in this area and not up in these kind of the wild areas, kind of the northwest territory. So he's writing to people different from where Paul had had such missionary success. In fact, these were tribal territories. And tribal territories with religions and cultures that were totally foreign to those who may have been raised in Roman-occupied Israel or in a city like Rome or elsewhere in the empire. Uh, One of the best commentaries on this book is by a gal by the name of Karen Jobes, and she writes this, The picture that emerges of the regions to which Peter wrote is one of a vast geographical area with just small cities, few and far between. It's Hicksville, it's Podunk, and it's wild. They're of a diversified population of indigenous peoples, Greek settlers and Roman colonists. And the residents practiced many religions, spoke several languages, and were never fully assimilated into the Greco-Roman culture. Now that's that's a pretty daunting thing to be plucked up and, and then planted in a place like that out in the middle of nowhere with people who don't speak the language and don't even remotely have your same view of life. They've not even been exposed to your way of life. These, most of these people had never been exposed to Judaism and certainly they had never been exposed to Christianity with very few exceptions. Cappadocia was one of those areas where some of the people on the day of Pentecost were from. And no doubt some of them were converted and carried the gospel back, but you're talking about a a drop in an ocean. And this colonization that's happened here, it was the, the habit of Roman emperors to bring their culture to areas by means of colonization and transplanting. Um... They would transplant Romanized people into these new regions. And they would do it in about groups of 300. Just a small group. You can imagine um, uh, sending a group of 300 people to the village of Victor. But Victor is totally separated from the city of Rochester, just off in the mountains someplace by itself. And these colonists were people that were poor and disenfranchised or freed slaves or undesirables due to ethnicity. Things of that that nature. And this has a real major bearing on this particular, uh, the audience that, that Peter's probably writing to. We know from historical sources, again, from being able to dig stuff up, that the Emperor Claudius, who reigned from 41 to 54, did two pertinent things. One, he established cities in all five of those regions that we talk about. He was particularly proud of the fact that he established cities in those five regions that are mentioned. But secondly... We know that Claudius tolerated the Jews only as long as they avoided three things. Number one, and this is this will tie into Acts in a second. The Jews were allowed to dwell in Rome as long as they were not to disturb the peace by anything like public preaching. For most of the Jews, that wasn't a problem. Secondly, they were not to oppose the accepted morals of the culture. And those morals were far different than biblical morals. And third, they were not to try and convert anyone. Now, that's okay, I guess, to a certain extent for the Jews, but you have to understand that Christians at that time were considered a Jewish sect. They were looked at by the government as all Jews, even the Christians. And the, the Christians violated all three of these. They were, they were out preaching in public. They were not accepting the morals of the culture where they were. They were decrying things as sin that the culture said were perfectly fine. And they were trying to convert others. They were preaching the gospel and saying, we want you to come to the saving knowledge of Christ. 
And so as Christians violated all three in the process in the early 40s, we know that Claudius attempted to expel all the Jews from Rome as troublemakers who didn't assimilate well. This is probably what's mentioned in Acts chapter 18. In 18, you read after Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, one of those regions, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome, and he went to see them. Now, Claudius and his wife, or uh, 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 Priscilla and Aquila were both Christians, but they were expelled as Jews. And again, because of the three things that they were doing. So here's the most likely scenario for First Peter and for Second Peter. He's writing to these displaced, mainly Jewish Christians, who were banished to these wild and sparsely populated areas specifically because they violated the social construct of the day. Ladies and gentlemen, this is where the church is headed. The longer we cling to the Bible's teaching and the further our culture moves away from a biblical base, the more we will be socially ostracized. We can't be socially acceptable because we do want to proclaim the gospel wherever we go. We do want to see people converted to Christ. And we cannot accept the moral climate of our present day. This is written an awful long time before us. But it sure has application to us. They violated the social construct of the day that required them to keep their religion private. And isn't that what we hear on every front now? Keep your religion to yourself. Preach it in your church, but don't try to give it to anybody else. Accept the morals of the moment. The Supreme Court has ruled that same-sex marriage is legal in all the land. Legal does not equate to moral. And the Christian says, I can't accept that. I've got a God who describes the morals that, that I'm to understand. And I can't be a part of that. And they would say, well, just leave other beliefs alone. So somebody wants to believe something else, leave them alone. And we say, no, it's our, it's our great privilege as well as our duty to introduce all men everywhere to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we don't back off because they're already religious in some other way. Fascinating how this fits into right where we are at the moment. So if, if we were to put it in the most modern terms, essentially their great crime was they were politically incorrect. And beloved, if we're going to continue to follow Christ, the truth is we're going to be politically incorrect. We can't help it. The Jews in not assimilating and the Christians even worse. And as Christians, they couldn't help being so. And so again, how amazingly on point this letter is for our particular point in time in the United States and at this moment in history. Their situation was so much like we're in right now with the current moral revolution. There's a, and, and let me explain that term, moral revolution. There's a theologian in Great Britain by the name of Theo Hobson. He, he is in favor of the current moral revolution. He's not a believer. But he says a moral re revolution requires three conditions to be considered a true revolution. Let me move beyond this. He says, that which was once condemned is now celebrated... That which was once celebrated is now condemned. And those who will not join the celebration are condemned. Sound familiar? It should. And it should be a wake-up call for us in where we are. And it's why this letter is vastly important to us right now. Second, the second framing thought, and I'll, we'll be moving quicker as we get through this, is that, Peter refers, as he closes this letter, to what he has written to his readers as the true grace of God. And so he says in 1 Peter 5.12, By Silvanus, a faithful brother, 
Silvanus is just a Latinized word for Silas. Remember Paul's old companion, Silas? Same guy. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. In other words, as we read this letter, as we study it, this is what genuine Christianity is supposed to look like when it's lived out in a hostile social environment. This is really good for us. And what we're going to find is we don't take up spears and swords and guns. But we fight this battle in an entirely different way. A way that Peter's going to unpack over time and show us the pitfalls we're likely to fall into. This is a manual for our day and our time and our context, especially our cultural context. What to do and what not to do given a wide set of circumstances and for believers in all sorts of roles. So we want to go to the four key concepts and I'm going to preface them all with this and we're going to take them right out of the text. They're all in verse two, so we won't have to go beyond that. So, being God's own favored people, elect, is not contrary to facing hardship and confusion and complexity and persecution and marginalization or other griefs. Being a Christian was no preventative to Bree getting shot as she went down to help at the 441 ministry. That isn't the way it works. And this is because our circumstances are, A, look at how he frames it, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Christians are this strange combination of both elect and exiles at the same time. We never separate those. This is a a dual identity that we have. And it's essential to retaining faith and hope when life around us just falls apart. Being exiles doesn't mean that we're not elect. And being elect does not mean that we're exempt from being exiles. Those things are completely compatible. Neither one cancels out the other. Not only don't they cancel each other out, in Peter's mind, they're compatible They're complementary. They actually work together synergistically for the believer. For while we wait for the fullness of the kingdom of God to arrive, both of these are going to be the reality. And both of these are comprehended in the foreknowledge of God. We're going to have to unpack that word foreknowledge as we move down the road too. It doesn't mean, and I understand some people will read a word like that, and they immediately think, oh yeah, well God just knows everything. And so God looks down the tunnel of time and he sees what's going to happen. Do you realize what you've just done with him the moment you've done that? You've relegated God to the realm of being a fatalist. That he doesn't actually move down there in history. He just looks down the tunnel of time and sees what's going to happen. If that's God and that's his foreknowledge, we may as well pack it up now because he's powerless to help. But his foreknowledge is far deeper than that. He knows what's going to happen because he has already determined what he's going to do. And that's the God we need to serve, who is not only in our moment, but in our future. Because he's the one who set those things in motion. We'll see that. Perhaps we'll go and unpack that term itself. Uh, when we look at the doctrine of election in a couple of weeks. He's, he's a God who knows, and there are no surprises that he needs to react to, as though accidents happen outside of his control. He doesn't wake up in the morning and go, oh, look what they did last night while I was asleep. This isn't the way he deals with the human race. He never sleeps and he never slumbers. And he... By this same word, foreknowledge, we find out in the book of Acts, it was the determinate foreknowledge of God. It is his setting in motion, his eternal plan, and that's how he knows. These people are both elect and exiles through the foreknowledge of God the Father. You get that? Both, equally ordained by God. 
Our exile is as much the stuff of his divine administration as that of our election and our sanctification. They can't be unwound from each other. It's a stunning reality. And it should give us great hope and comfort when we're in the midst of a society that is just unraveling at every corner. Coming apart at the seams. God isn't shocked and he doesn't have to. This is the difference between human beings and God. God never has to react. He only acts. Now that doesn't mean he doesn't respond. It's interesting. We have other voices in the midst. Is someone channeling another preacher by any chance? No, the reality is that that God in his foreknowledge has determined and is working and carrying out his plan even in the free actions of men. We'll take care of that later when we look at at election. Secondly, being God's own favored people is not contrary to facing hardship, confusion, complexity, persecution, marginalization, or other griefs because our circumstances are also in the sanctification of the Spirit. What's his first phrase? That these are true according to your elect and exiles, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in sanctification of the Spirit. Taking all these things together then, we're to view our trials and tribulations as designed to be part of the Spirit's work in sanctifying us, in bringing us increasingly to bear the image of Christ's character in all of life. Trials are not contrary to that work. And I know sometimes, maybe you've said this, I know I have at times, you know, I could really concentrate on my Christian life if I didn't have to deal with this issue over here. No, it is dealing with that issue in Christ that's part of growing in your Christian life. You don't separate those things. You see that in the foreknowledge of God, they're woven inextricably together. I could be a better Christian if I didn't have her as a wife. Lie. I could be a better Christian if I didn't have him as a husband. Lie. I could be a better Christian if I didn't live in this neighborhood. Lie. I'd be a better Christian if I had a better job. Lie. Through his foreknowledge, you are in your exilic state as an elect individual so that you might be sanctified there. Don't run from the trial. Run through it in the power of the Spirit. That's what he's calling us to. God intends and uses these trials to that end. Now, you stop and you say, well, wait a minute. Doesn't Satan play into this in any way? Sure he does. Sure he does. But what the devil means for evil, God means for our good. And we always have to remember that. That that the devil is... Here's here's a problem. And maybe, maybe you take your theology from Star Wars. I hope not. I hope not. Because Star Wars is pure, unabashed Hinduism. You might not know that, but it is. Now, I enjoy, I am a science fiction freak. I love Star Wars. I will binge on Star Wars. But let me tell you that Star Wars is coming from a particular theological point of view. And that is that there is the light side of the force and there's the dark side of the force. And you get to use them. And the euphemism, if we were to draw it into Christianity, is there's God, and then there's God's arch nemesis, Satan. Let me tell you, Satan is not equal to God. He is a measly created angel. He's not God's opposite. He's the opposite of a a righteous angel. But he's one fallen being. And he does not have the power to somehow override God or be the complete anti-force to God. Doesn't exist. That's a myth that we've imbibed. The Bible never paints him that way. But instead, especially as you look in the, in the, uh, in the book of Job, God is the one who is, has to give him permission to do the stuff he's doing. And why does he do that? Because he has ordained us for sanctification Through the Spirit. So what the devil does by his own wicked will. 
God utilizes for our good in his sovereign rulership over the universe. God overrides and redeems the evil for our good. Third phrase that he uses in the passage. Being God's own favored people is not contrary to facing hardship or confusion or complexity or persecution or marginalization or other griefs because our circumstances are, number one, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, number two, in the process of the sanctification of the Spirit, and three, I am in these trials so that I might be set apart for obedience to Christ. Those aren't the things that work disobedience. They are part and parcel of me learning to become fully obedient and to Christ. Our election and our sanctification aren't things done in a vacuum. Things unattached to anything else in life. There's a purpose behind them. And here, the stated purpose is for obedience to Jesus Christ. And please let me point this out. It is obedience not to the law, not to some external code, but to Christ himself. So that I might be weaned away from any structure and follow him. The one who, as we're going to see in the book of 1 Peter, is the one who's gone before us in all these things. It's not a a bare obedience, but it's an obedience that's within the context of salvation. We obey Christ because we're already saved, not in order to get saved. Scripture's clear. One day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. At that point, it will be the obedience of a bit and bridle for those who don't know him. But here, for us, it is the obedience which issues from a heart transformed by grace and pursuing holiness out of a new nature. A nature that desires holiness as naturally as God himself does. What a transformation he's aiming at. Now, is it any wonder that that kind of a transformation requires massive forces? And the most massive force that God uses external to us is life. And the most massive force internally is his spirit. And in the combination, he's bringing us to obedience to Christ and then his fourth thought. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in sanctification of the spirit, for the purpose of obedience to Jesus Christ, And for sprinkling with his blood. Now, that phrase may seem a little odd to us in our context. But Peter's readers would have identified with this right away. Because again, most of the Christians at this point were Jewish Christians. They had been converted out of Judaism, but they were still considered Jews, even though they were Christians. Jewish believers in the first century, for them, it conjured up lots of images out of the Old Testament. The sprinkling with blood is used throughout the Old Testament. And and it's clearly a reference to blood sprinkled in a number of different contexts. There are at least four. Let me just look at four. There's others, but I'm going to look at four main examples. The first is in uh, Leviticus 14.7. When lepers were cleansed, so that they could be readmitted to the community, they had to be sprinkled with blood to show that they were clean again. In Exodus 24, 8, when the Mosaic Covenant was inaugurated by God, both the people and the altar and the tabernacle were all sprinkled with blood so that they could show that they belonged to Christ. They were purchased by his blood. In Leviticus 4, 5 through 6, when something was to be purified from sin, didn't matter what it was, it was to be sprinkled with blood. And then in Exodus 29, 21, when someone or something was to be consecrated or separated for service unto God, they were sprinkled with blood. And therefore, as as elect and exiles, both of those things, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in sanctification of the Spirit, and for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with His blood, ah, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Wow.
The idea is this. As you explore the grace of God in your salvation, in deeper and deeper ways, as you see this starting with God and His eternal foreknowledge, electing you, choosing you, bringing you to Himself, so that so that you might be separated from the world in that sanctification of the Spirit. And so that you, you are made one who obeys Christ as Lord above every other authority and sprinkled with His blood, consecrated to Him. As you ponder that in deeper and deeper ways, so may the peace that you experience from that exploration increase accordingly. That's his point. In fact, it's the natural consequence of such exploration. One of the things that tends to throw us in life when we run into trials and tribulations is that we don't think deeply enough about how God is working in our salvation and sanctification and where he wants to bring us to. We kind of separate between that and the events of life. And in the process, we lose hope. We don't see Him as working in and through these things for our good. And so we begin to look in an entirely different way. Need more peace? Understand the grace of God towards you and what it means more and more. The more you understand the depths and the extent to which God has to act in order to make you His own and to purify and to make you into the image of Christ, the more and more peace you have. So there's a summary. God, within His sovereign rights, chooses those for Himself upon whom He'll bestow eternal life in Jesus. And those on whom the Spirit of God will move to separate from the world unto Himself and begin the work of conforming them to the image of Christ. Those who would be given over to Christ Jesus as their Lord in direct contradiction to the rebellion that began back in the garden in humankind. Those who are sprinkled with the blood of Christ and are by that blood cleansed from their sin, made partakers of His new covenant, set apart from all creation and consecrated to and for Him. It's astounding. Christian, do you realize that that's what's going on in your life right now? Do you realize that the trial, that the confusion, that the complexity, that the difficulty that you're in the midst of is wrapped up in your salvation? He's working. And look, look at the means he's using. You can stop as a Christian today and say, look how God is using the Supreme Court to help sanctify me today. How He's using world events and global economies to make me His so that I might follow Christ and nothing that this world tries to dangle before me is what needs to be followed. So that I can walk in obedience to Him and be and be separated, consecrated to Him by His blood. Face your trials knowing that they are ordained by God and so to be capitalized by, uh, by us to those ends. Capitalized on. I don't know about you, but it is not my first impulse to capitalize on my trials. But this is the privilege He gives us. Because this is what he's called us to in himself. This, Peter writes to comfort his brothers and sisters in Christ who have been involuntarily submerged into a hostile culture completely removed from anything they've ever known before. This is what the Holy Spirit wrote and preserved for us who are now in the midst of a culture which which functions on values that are completely hostile to biblical ones and which will marginalize biblical Christians more and more in the coming days. That's not going to shift unless some extraordinary means of revival comes on the scene. 
in the very midst of this, we can have grace and peace, not only not diminished, but multiplied to us because of Christ. Dwell on the wonder of this kind of grace. And the more you do, the more peace you will have multiplied to you, regardless of your circumstances. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, New York, United States of America. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that Your Word speaks so decisively and clearly at a time when when it seems like everything around us is up for grabs. As though the, the nation we once knew no longer exists. As, as the country we once thought would protect our Christian and biblical values, turns its back on us. And we, like Peter's friends here, find ourselves in an increasingly hostile culture. Help us to take advantage of our moment in time, of our place in history, Help us to seize upon the challenges that are in front of us and not view them as inevitable defeats, but just the opposite, as opportunities to deepen our sense of what it means to be yours through your unbelievable grace bestowing the riches of Christ upon us. As we examine the reality of how you're transforming us from true children of darkness, where that was our character, to children of light. As you're working through all that that takes inwardly, and as you're, as you're leading us to a, a whole new focus, of fixing our eyes on Christ and and following Him and nothing in this world. And as we contemplate the stunning reality of being consecrated to You, not by some religious ceremony, not by some earthly means, not by some mere religious decision, but by Your sovereign hand applying to us the very blood of Christ that consecrates us wholly to Yourself. Oh, Father, may we, may we muse on, think about, delve into, ruminate, consider, meditate on the wonders of those things that our peace may be preserved as we move forward in our time and in our place. And we give you praise for that in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. Amen.
Jesus today. Have a great day.